0: We're back with an all-new Keep It from Iron Madison III.
1: I'm Lewis Fertel, and it's just us. How
0: eerie. I don't even know why we were recording Keep It today. (laughs) (laughs) Because first of all, I am in the middle of a move. Right. I am surrounded by boxes. I was trying to find my equipment to record, and I had to... I don't have Wi-Fi in my home, so now I am in the belly of the beast I am in the crooked office.
1: Which has me nostalgic.
0: Yes, but I couldn't figure out how to get the lights on in our studio. So I am sitting in the office of Love It, Vitor, and He Who Shall Not Be Named.
1: Right, right, right. Um, yeah. But it also feels like a fitting tribute to Tommy Vitor, who just turned 40 and whose birthday is eerily close. To Macaulay Culkin's fortieth birthday, so now I've been thinking about him in the Page Master all day.
0: Do you think they were switched at birth?
1: <laughs> I don't know. the The Culkins are a very particular brand. It's hard to fake being one. I think.
0: I would love Tommy to be a lost Culkin,
1: or like just a lost child star. Like we look back and it turns out he was the star of The Client or whatever. Yeah, <laughs>
0: he was. He was on Zoom.
1: <laughs> God. You ever watch those kids on Zoom? I sometimes go back uh, to the late 90s version that was full of kids our age. Man, they had to be fucking peppy. I think that job was no joke. And you had to be peppy while you made some pizza I do not want to (laughs) eat.
0: I feel like they plied them full of Adderall.
1: (laughs) Oh, God, I would love there to be a gritty underbelly to it.
0: But also, Miss Aida is not here because of... The seven plagues hit her home.
1: She got Her apartment is currently, or wherever she is, is currently flooded. I'm picturing, like, I don't know. You ever watch, like, Winnie the Pooh and the Blustery Day, where, like, Piglet has to leave his home on a leaf and, like, <laughs> stare out? That's what I'm thinking about. Poor her.
0: Uh, she's listening to WAP too much.
1: <laughs> right. Now it all makes sense. Oh, my God. Have you seen that viral video of that guy who did the 80s R&B version of yeah. that song? Oh, my God. That is where I live. That's the kind of music I listen to the most often. you got to look up this video if you don't know what I'm talking about, guys.
0: You listen to 80s R&B the most often?
1: Well, it's the the serious station I listen to most often is oriented that way. So I weirdly Mm. hear Keith Sweat more than you would think I do.
0: (laughs) I'm just imagining you driving along, driving (laughs) along, listening to Keith Sweat. (laughs) I love that.
1: Pointing out the window at like pop girls and stuff. Yeah, Guy Groove Me, that comes on a lot. I'll Be Sure, Night and Day. Oh, yeah.
0: I uh, mostly have been listening to a lot of Brandy, which was pre-The Versus, which happened Mm -hmm. yesterday, which was, you know, and we've talked about them on the show before, there is Versus, which was started by um Timbaland and Swiss Beats. Um and different people go head to head each week playing their music. They play 20 songs each. Um celebration of like music and like people like coming together. Like I think the last one we talked about was Jill Scott and Erica Badu. And this one was women again. It was Brandy and Monica. And
1: have they worked together before? Oh, they have. Yes, yeah, that's right. Yeah, Boy is mine. I'm familiar with that. Boy is mine. Mm-hmm.
0: The boy is mine. They also were on concert last year together, and we didn't hear "Boy Is Mine." They had different sets, and we were like, "Are they still beefing?" Because you know <laughs> their history of beef, right? And, it's serious. You know, you know, it seemed to be love after the show. There was a clip of them like hugging and stuff afterwards. But watching it, it was just like you can see why. Oh yeah, <laughs> the history is all there. It's a uh... brandy. Brandy's just very much an Aquarius, and she is constantly doing the most and. Monica seems to be, like, not having, <laughs> doing the most behavior.
1: Sometimes I like to remind myself how many weeks Monica spent at number one, because not only did she have The boys' mind, she had Angel of Mine, mm-hmm. which was also just as gigantic a hit, and they were one after the other. So mm-hmm. something like the amount of number one weeks she had in that year or something is staggering. Like, nobody has that many no- weeks at number one.
0: Yeah. Weren't we talking about number ones before? I think, like, the Black Eyed Peas spent a significant amount of time with two different oh, singles. Right,
1: Boom Boom Pow, and I Got a Feeling, yeah. By the way, we'll talk about the VMAs, obviously. I am not nostalgic for the Black Eyed Peas. Like, I don't need to see them do their thing again. <laughs> like, like in a way, music still kind of sounds like that. I just am, I don't crave that.
0: Mm. Well, let's go ahead and get the show started, because I'm looking out the window here, and I see... So we're doing yoga on the roof of a building.
1: Absolutely not. Naked. (laughs) Well, it's L.A. You got to fit in. That's how you do it here.
0: Uh, This episode, um, we started out lighthearted, but we will be talking about uh, Chadwick Boseman this episode. Um, We're going to do a full keep it tribute to a man who deserves it, truly.
1: Just an unacceptable news event. I, I we'll, we'll get into it. Sorry, I don't mean to start the conversation now. Go ahead, Ira. Tell them what, what they're listening
0: to. <laughs> uh, we are also going to be joined by Phil Picardi on the show today, who is the host of the new Crooked podcast, Unholier Than Thou.
1: Great title. I was not in the meeting for it. I just want to say that, but it's a great title.
0: You know what? So th- it was this two Faith episodes back to back. Really
1: disgusting. Yeah. Who are yeah. we? Martin Scorsese? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Uh, and then, of course, there's so much more to discuss, whether it be the NBA and Bella Thorne and <laughs> the VMAs. So uh, we'll be right back. Yesterday was National Poll Worker Recruitment Day. And guess what? Even if you miss that fake holiday, you can still sign up to be a poll worker. When polling places don't have enough poll workers, they close, which can leave many voters unheard.
1: In an election year where voting has already become more complicated by this pandemic, we can't risk losing the votes we need. Vote Save America is working to recruit 10,000 poll workers. If you are healthy and able, sign up to be trained and work as a poll worker at your polling location. Find more info on votesaveamerica.com slash
0: vote. All right, it finally happened. We finally took the trip to Chromatica. And it was very Crayola colored, as expected. <laughs> Gaga has been teasing trips to Chromatica forever. And honestly, if there wasn't a pandemic, I would have already been to Chromatica. Right. Because I had tickets to see the Chromatica Ball in London on my birthday this year.
1: And that was sabotage. Did not right? happen. Right, right, right. The pandemic is all about you, by the way. (laughs) Yes, I was excited that we got so much uh, screen time with Lady Gaga here. That was definitely part of her deal signing on to be at the VMAs, by the way, because she was, it may as well have been a 70s variety show about Lady Gaga based on what we got from her not just in terms of multiple performances but i think up to nine speeches where she was in different costumes every time it was like the flip wilson show (laughs) with her hundreds of different characters
0: (laughs) it reminded me of when i worked at mtv news it was the year when beyonce did lemonade Uh uh-huh and basically it's like they were trying to negotiate to get her on and it was like yeah i'm gonna do it if you give me like 30 minutes to do my whole fucking album. Yeah, right. <laughs> as, as a medley. And this was like, because it was, you know, a socially distanced VMAs for the first year, it was done digitally. Um, and we'd already seen how an award show like that can be done with the BET Awards,
1: which was fabulous. Yeah.
0: This was clearly a lot of things were pre planned and everything was pre filmed. So, yeah, I feel like. Usually the VMAs are something that is hard to even keep talent at because I've been at VMAs, especially recently, and they are not the heyday of the VMAs where you would see, like, people still reacting to performances at the end of the night, right? You know, like, once people get their award that they know they're there to get or see, like, the opening performance and get on the red carpet, they flee. And then there's usually MTV trying to not show empty seats in the front for the rest of the show. But for this, with the pre-planning and everything, it's like they were able to space out celebrity appearances. And also, I feel like they definitely were just like, Gaga, this is how many times you're winning all the outfits you want.
1: Right. Plus, a completely fake new award. That's my least favorite thing an award show can do is add and delete categories too often. And now the VMA is in this place where, like the idea that there's a song of the year VMA, it's like, no, let's think about what VMA stands for. This makes no sense. We have plenty of other award shows that award song alone. Like we can leave that alone, (laughs) but. Tricon. Also Tricon. Like I can hear the pitch meeting for this award. Like how can we bring in the super famous people that would, you know, how can we butter them up enough so that they come and perform for us? And so you come up with this icon award when, Nobody needs to be reminded again that Lady Gaga has multiple talents and we don't need yeah. to give her another award just for that. It's like the one year in the 70s they had a Super Emmy Award where uh, they gave it to Alan Alda because he directed episodes of MASH and also starred in it. And it's like, why? Why, why, why can't you just stick with the categories you have that award uh, these things?
0: If only John Travolta had directed episodes of Welcome Back, Connor.
1: I I, that was my first instinct. Yeah. Then
0: Alan would have had some competition. <laughs> Alas, yes. Uh they had a super Emmy once and then it went away. Isn't that so
1: stupid? Yeah. Also, the term super Emmy, it just sounds so bargain basement and kind of like Tricon, which I can, again, I can picture the whiteboard where they wrote words and then put them together like they were the Zodiac uh, Killer. Yeah.
0: I mean, you work with enough like white people in marketing and you hear something like that and your head immediately goes to like the meetings and, like, the emails and, like, people in an elevator being like, I'm really, like, vibing with Tricon. Yeah, 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 me too. And um, bringing it up in a meeting and, like, someone has this whole PowerPoint presentation and they're talking about how, like, this is going to create conversations online, you know, and it's really going to make people think about Tricon and con (laughs) and forget about the fact that we normally hand out the Michael Jackson Video Vanguard Award.
1: That's just it. Uh, That must have been... It must have been a solution for we don't have anybody we want to give the Vanguard Award to this year. So they wanted to give something additional to Gaga, mm-hmm. which, by the way, additional is putting it lightly because she won something like five awards that night, too. Mm-hmm. So it's not like we needed this extra moment with her.
0: And maybe not wanting to have it just named after Michael anymore.
1: Oh, that's probably true, to also. Be
0: Although they did fuck up because the official paperwork says the Michael Jackson Tricon Award. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine? If they're like, oh, the Michael Jackson Tricon Award. Like they're
1: doubling down. Yeah. <laughs> that said, Bjork still has not won the uh, video Vanguard Award. And if they keep it around, I mean, give it to the woman. I think after Madonna and Michael Jackson, Bjork is the third most important music video artist ever just she has a dozen videos where there's been nothing like it then or since and we still think of her as somebody weird with like wearing a mobile on her head or something and so we don't look at the videos and think of them as amazing anymore does
0: gen z think of her i guess not (laughs) i i want to know i'm sure our gen z listeners will um respond on twitter uh, or tiktok or wherever it is they find us uh, probably Snapchat, to be honest. Right. Uh, let us know. Do y'all know Bjork? Are y'all down with Bjork? Because <laughs> I, I see, I see teens walking around with Sublime shirts on lately. Right. That's become a thing in LA, and I have a lot of questions about that. Sublime has two good songs. No, right? They're barely a brand. Like they we had, didn't, yeah. we didn't even listen to Sublime. No, when it was around for us. So, what are y'all doing?
1: The only reggae-influenced artist I listen to is Adele. You know
0: that. Everything gonna be (laughs) (laughs) I.E. Also, when that picture of Adele appeared online where she
1: has the um, uh, bantu knots in her hair and the uh, Jamaica flag bikini top on... Somebody posted that joke immediately, and it, it, like the conversation's over after that. Like the joke is so right, we don't need to go any further with it, and I wanted it to have more of a funny moment. That said people came to Adele's defense because I guess it was a part of some sort of
0: what was it I, I should so I should, it was it was really nothing. It was people making jokes about Adele and then. Because the internet has no ability to take any jokes about a celebrity without thinking that that celebrity is about to be, quote, unquote, canceled. Right. There were all sorts of tweets of people saying, how dare you try and cancel Adele? And it's like, no one is canceling Adele, baby. It's it's just funny. You know, like, you can make fun of people without canceling them. Right. Like, Blake Lively and Ryan Reynolds apologized for the whole plantation thing, right? I'm still going to be getting off these jokes until the day that they die. (laughs) Um, I will always make jokes about them getting married on a plantation, <laughs> and they've earned it. I, I agree. I agree. He
1: still is supposed to remake the movie Clue. Mm, you know that's bothering me. But anyway,
0: um, well, they were gonna shoot it. You know, on a plantation. <laughs> it was gonna. It was gonna be. It was gonna be <laughs> Professor Plum with the cotton gin <laughs> in the slave quarters.
1: <laughs> oh my God! Uh, but of course equally shocking about the Adele pictures she really does look like Katy Perry hanging out at Bonnaroo or something it was really jarring in that way
0: yeah we talked about Adele before the show and there's constantly a convo to be had obviously like um about her new image and everything but I'm not even concerned with discussing like the weight loss anymore you know for me Adele every new image of her that comes out just looks crazed. <laughs> <laughs> like, first of all, she looked she looked high as fuck in that photo, for one. But then I'm just like, the Bantu knots, but then, like, the other looks were like she's always looking like um, Megan from Accounting. It's just like, the the Adele that we knew was always very 60s, like, right. um, glamour. That kind of refined, yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. you know, it was a throwback, you know, like, to, like, a... Um, Dusty Springfield, you know, like like that kind of thing, like a white woman who's like giving you like rhythm and blues and soul, you know, right? And um, no look that Adele has debuted recently makes me think that she knows what soul music is.
1: <laughs> right. No, it, it, I, it, it, the way she dresses now makes me wonder, like, what's happening? Like, because she, she, you're right, she had such a defined aesthetic for so long. And like, that's yeah. leaving in addition to this image overhaul.
0: So, Like, is she about to drop, like, a Heidi Montag album? What's really going on? Wow. (laughs)
1: Heidi Montag (laughs) did have one good song, and I have to tell you, it's failing me what the title is. Do you know what I'm talking
0: about? Uh, Well, I know every Heidi Montag song, so I know it wasn't higher, the one that she sang on the beach. Uh, (laughs) The video she scrubbed from the internet. Um, Was it the one? um, More is More. Do you know mm, that song? More is More on the dance floor. Dance floor. It's fucking chaos in here. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> A chorus. <laughs> and the way she says it's chaos in here
1: is like somebody saying, I hate it here. It's like that kind of panic.
0: <laughs> she said, evacuate the dance floor, period. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Okay, but back to the VMAs. Back to the Yes.
0: VMAs. You know what? This is what always happens when it's uh, Ira and Lewis Variety Hour.
1: Right. You Well, you say <laughs> one name and then we, like we talk about the greatest hits album we bought in 1994 that we need to discuss again now. Um, but also, because it was a weird not or pseudo live broadcast, it had that weird problem where at different times during the telecast, I had no idea where we were in time and space. Like, are we on top of a building? Who can see this right now? How much of this applause mm-hmm. is fake? Etc., which are not like essential ingredients to making an award show awesome. Obviously, it's more about the performances and mm-hmm. the speeches.
0: I would say that the BET Awards were more successful to me, um, and maybe it's because they took more of a social justice approach. Of course, the awards for Black people, and um, Black people have been going through a lot this year. But the added in claps and cheers and making it seem like you know everyone was participating just felt so dystopian to me.
1: Yeah. Kiki Palmer, also the first black woman to host the VMAs solo, which seems insane. Can't believe it.
0: Well, I feel like Chris Rock hosted it like um, 20 times in a row. Right. And then after that, I think they pretty much just abandoned hosts for the VMAs recently.
1: Yeah, though they did have Sebastian Maniscalco host it last year, which felt like the weirdest (laughs) matchup in Styles. I mean, he is a popular comic, I guess, but with people who care about Rihanna, I'm not sure. (laughs)
0: Uh otherwise I would say like yeah, it was it was a fun watch. And um yeah. I honestly only did not know two people.
1: Oh, congrats. And you're 34, so you yes. should be well over the hill. Yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah. it was I, I did not know CNCO, um, but I do know them now, and I realized that they were on this little mix song that I love. And I also t- <laughs> the one person I didn't know, I really should have known. <laughs> I don't know who Joey King was. Oh, uh, well, Joey King is like... But <laughs> I, I haven't watched the
1: act. Right, no, Joey King is one of those names where it sounds like a model, like James King, and then you're reacquainted with the fact that that's not that person, and you're like, have I heard of this person ever before? Have I known who they are for 15 years and I just forgot? No, she's just in the act.
0: No, yeah, I was watching it with a friend and I was like, wait, I don't know who this is. There's my point. And they were like, Joey King. And I was like, oh, yeah, still don't know.
1: <laughs> yeah. Also, by the way, the look of the VMAs I do think was a little dubious. It looked like the Total Recall remake to me, which the only thing I really remember about that movie was thinking, oh, I guess this is what we're doing with Kate Sale now. But... Miley was really good. I mean, a lip sync performance, but it was pretty spectacular and recalled her wrecking ball uh, iconography. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, like that. And Gaga's performance was great too. You know, oh,
1: um, no, she was amazing. I do not mean to understate that she yeah. was the high point of the whole fucking thing.
0: Yes, and uh, what I also want to point out: one, she gave the gays everything that they wanted with the chromatica into. 911 transition yes. and I loved how she it started out with her watching the TV and then like jumping into it and it was like watching um it was like watching the Tony Awards performance of the Drowsy Chaperone Wow <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Uh, which I feel like we watch every weekend. <laughs> <laughs> Ira and I
1: have friends where we have like we play YouTube clips and it always we always have friends who need to scream their lungs out at show tunes by the end of the night. This is women and men, by the way. And so it always goes
0: to that place. But I would say that what I really enjoyed about this performance was Ariana, to be honest. Because we don't talk about it as much anymore with all the fucking shit that's going on in the world, right? In the pandemic, but it's like Last year was basically hell for that girl. Right. You know, um, from the Manchester bombing to Pete Davidson situation, it was just like, it was really just sort of like tough break after tough break. And she came back, you know, with Thank You Next and, you know, did Coachella last year and everything. But even seeing her live at Coachella, like seeing Ariana as a performer it has always felt to me a little bit like she was just like going through the motions. Like, I don't really enjoy this dancing. I like singing, whatever, you know? She seemed like she was having so much fun at the VMAs and it felt almost like a resurgence of an Ariana that is really enjoying what she's doing now. And I'm very happy for her.
1: Yeah, uh, she was fabulous during the performance. By the way, you bringing up her and Pete Davidson... Could anything feel longer ago? You, it's like you just brought up Sharon Greg Allman. Like, I, that's <laughs> decades
0: I, in the past. I'm only reminded of it because every time I open my Apple TV, it always says one of the top movies is King of Staten Island. And I feel like that is Paola. <laughs> <laughs> Who was watching this movie?
1: Right. I haven't heard any, dis- any conversation about it since. I mean, I barely hear any conversation about like Taylor Swift's folklore anymore. And that was supposed to have changed all our lives. You know what I mean? I do want to bring up BTS's performance, which can I just say something about that group? They're very talented, mm-hmm. and I like that song. The dancing is always a little funny because it's it's so kicky and thrusty. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's always like they're going 150% per move. Like there's no way they're not wildly exhausted a- after it. And by the way, I cannot even sit through a performance of theirs without needing to identify. The way everybody's outfit is a little bit different. I'm like, you know, mm-hmm. like you know those kids with the Rubik's cubes who like do the 50 configurations yeah. and they're done. I'm like a speedster when it comes to identifying all the different things in the outfit. I'm like, that one's double-breasted, that one's unbuttoned, that one, you know, like I need to, yeah, I need to solve them all.
0: Well, I am think finally maybe going down the BTS path, um, joining the army, and it's weird. When I was tweeting this, like they're. An intersection of BTS and Keep It stands, mm-hmm. who are very excited now. Who knew that those intersected? Um, it's beautiful, yeah. But because um, I've always been about girl groups, uh, you know, like Red Velvet is my fave, and um, Blackpink, of course, have an amazing new song with uh, Miss Selena Gomez, Ice Cream. I adore that song, and the video. I oh,
1: I like Ice Cream too. Yeah, and uh, it's also lit up the charts.
0: Yeah, um, but this BTS performance was really good. It's really cute. I came out loving them and also loving CNC So I'm like, you know what? Maybe the VMAs really did do something for like introducing me to new music still.
1: Wow, inspirational. It is weird that the VMAs have anything left to teach us. Uh, but and by the way, I think ultimately a really good video of the year winner, the weekend blinding lights. The video does remind me of Joker sometimes, which I hate, but everything else about it is a pretty harsh a memorable video and it's a good comeback for that award because i just don't think you need to calm down was like a great video of the year she also won for bad blood come on guys you know that was not the video of the year
0: <laughs> remember that
1: video just people walking in front of a green screen
0: talking of eras of people like that seems so far ago as an era for taylor swift the idea of all these fucking celebrities being in this video have you re-watched it recently uh, and it's like uh, Lena Dunham, right. <laughs> uh, Kendrick Lamar, uh, Mariska Hargitay. Yeah,
1: Ellen Pompeo. Right. Yes. Uh, it's everybody with barrel curls walking towards a camera. Great. Didn't need Video of the Year for that.
0: Mm. But um, it's pretty good. And apparently the ratings were steady um, and very big on social media. So chic. We'll ha- we'll have them again. The VMAs did what needed to be done. <laughs> chloe and hallie as well was amazing but they've done amazing performances every award show i would say that what's really been highlighted about our past few, not even the pandemic but our past few years i feel like music videos have sort of come back right we've talked about the Watt video so much we talk about other videos and i just feel like um maybe it's specifically my age group our age group um but i feel like when we get together as friends like we like are constantly playing videos, you know? And if it's an artist you like, you love mixing their new videos into the rotation, you know? So I feel like music videos are still as vital a part of my life again as they used to be when we were younger. Um, So maybe the VMAs still sort of have that relevance.
1: It's like we all agree to watch one new music video every three months. Mm -hmm. And then we all watch it, and we remember it, and then we watch it a million times. But it's not like the... MTV days of yore, where you would watch them in a constant rotation randomly and you'd see videos for songs you wouldn't otherwise listen to on your own. Like, we have a very curated sense of the importance of music videos now. It's like, I mean, again, I think of my childhood, and how many times have I seen the video for Beastie Boys Intergalactic, which is not my brand at all, but you had to watch it all the time if you watched MTV.
0: Well, that is very much my brand because I will stir fry you in my walk. <laughs> Wow. Didn't expect a quote. All right. Intergalactic is one of my top 5 songs ever. Really? I fucking love that song. And the video is so cute. The video is amazing. I mean, the yeah. guys were funny. They're funny yeah. guys. But I mean, I mean for me like how many times did I see the fucking corn freak on a leash video? Right. And then The fuck what was it the bullet?
1: Yes, that was yeah. flying through everything. Yeah. yeah. Kind of a comic book looking thing. Mhm. Mm-hmm. Do you know what's a good video from that time? Everything is everything by Lauren Hill. That I think is one of the best videos ever. Yeah.
0: I think you've said that before, too. Okay, well, I still
1: mean it, baby. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Her running around on the in the city, but it's on a turntable.
1: Yes. And very exactly the denim jacket from that time, that like Madonna, ray of light, Mm -hmm. heavy denim, half jacket.
0: You know who else's favorite video that is? Gina Rodriguez.
1: That's where you took that? She loves Lord Hill. Yeah.
0: She loves Lord Hill. I <laughs> uh, wonder if niggas still give her heebie-jeebies. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> when we're back, we're joined by Phil Bacardi. Keep It is brought to you by Barefoot Dreams. Lewis, yes. when you see Footprints in the Sand, that was when I carried you in my Barefoot Dreams robe. Now, is that a Leona Lewis song? <laughs> <laughs> no? Uh, if you want to bring coziness into your life, you turn to Barefoot Dreams, especially now as the brand is celebrating their 30th anniversary. Our guest today is the former editor-in-chief of Out Magazine. He's worked at Teen Vogue and them and is currently a contributor for GQ. But most importantly, he's the host of Crooked Media's own spirituality podcast, Unholier Than Thou. Please welcome, finally, to keep it, Philip Picardi.
2: Thank you, Ira. What an honor to be here after years of begging you to be on your podcast and you shadily evading me. Well, you
0: know, you 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 scammed your way onto Crooked. I and sure then did. I, had to. I
2: said, I said, producer, get me on, keep it. You had Karamo on before me. That is okay. You know wow. what?
0: That's history. <laughs> it was. It was history in
1: the making.
2: It really was. Congratulations again. On that uh, groundbreaking
1: episode. Thank you. (laughs) What's it been like recording this damn podcast? I mean, I I think of spirituality as something that people have to privately solve for themselves. And so... When listeners check into this podcast, what do you hope to provide for them? Um, the po-
2: recording the podcast has been, in a word, uh, re-traumatization. You know, like uh, excavating the stories of my youth and the way that I was brought up, um, and in the role that religion played in all of that, and then trying to make sense of it. And the impetus for recording the podcast and for creating this podcast was twofold. On on the one hand, my fiance proposed to me. I'm, I'm marrying a doctor. I don't like to brag about it, but I just wanted to point that out. And and then the second, she thing- loves
1: to brag about it she sure does <laughs> have you he seen just wagged him? a ring in front of us like he was <laughs> on the nanny or something he's,
2: he's also hot i mean i really hit the jackpot there um and then more importantly and like more seriously I, I did get laid off from my job in december um after a you know a really nice and lovely career in media where i felt very charmed and <laughs> to have like all of that kind of cr- crumble from underneath me and i realized how much that was a defining source of like where I channeled my energy. So when it was all gone, I really did like look towards like what is next. And I did not want to go back into magazines. I also did not really want to dive headfirst into fashion again and so I decided to go back to the beginning, and religion just felt like the obvious thing that was calling to me. It's been calling to me since I came out of the closet. That The night I came out of the closet was the last time I ever prayed to God. And I just kind of felt indignant about it as I got older. Like, why did I have to turn away from God? And why was that the messaging I received from my family and community when really it should have been the opposite. And so, this is a, it's equal parts me exploring what religion and spirituality mean to me, um, but also showcasing to the world the role and the massive role that religion plays in everything from politics to pop culture.
0: You know, that makes a lot of sense to me because if I can honestly say, like, the past few weeks, I don't know if it's the pandemic, I don't know if it's um, all sorts of other things happening in our life, but I've been feeling like this sort of pull as well you know um i was raised baptist um and then i think i don't really think it was coming out of the closet for me i think it was just sort of um my family drifted away from spending a lot of time in the church and then i just became a person who was like i need to get out of my hometown i need to go do my own thing you know and like religion didn't seem like my own thing uh and i had moments where i dipped in and out before but um Really, just like last week on the show, we had Rami Yusuf, you know, and we were talking about um, Islam and, you know, like just watching his show was about self-reflection through faith, but also through just trying to improve yourself and think about this otherworldly thing that's going on. And I'm like, we talked a lot about what you believe in, even if you don't have faith in like a God, like we replace it with something right you know lewis has replaced it with academy award um, (laughs) trivia um wikipedia (laughs) and um me you know it's like it's not like there aren't things i don't believe in you know it's like i we talk about tara we talk about astrology i just moved this weekend so that's what i'm dealing congratulations and i had a friend you know thank you do like a cleansing ritual and blessing my home and it involved you know a lot of The Psalms and things that I'm still familiar with.
2: Oh, that's really nice. Yeah, I think what you're saying is that this stuff does stay with us. And just because we are not religious in a traditional or dogmatic sense of the word does not mean that we are also abandoning faith or spirituality entirely. And I think a lot of young people feel like that. Like there's millions of Pew reports that, that show us that young people are not going to church. But if I'm looking at the amount of young people who are in our streets right now, fighting for equality, I would rather be in spiritual community with those folks than with the folks who are sitting in the pews being hypocrites, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, that we have to redefine spirituality for the next generation. Um, and we have to also make sure that people feel comfortable in, the, in their spirituality. Like a lot of the, the folks that I've talked to in the podcast so far have mentioned that they feel afraid being spiritual with their friends or they feel like you know they can be sidelined or, or considered like a hokey pokey if they're talking about their belief in God. And, you know, we also don't want to do, do that to folks. But we also don't want to go into this, like, dogmatic religious direction where faith is the only driving factor of the decisions we make in our personal lives. And so I'm trying to, like, figure out where the you know, the balance is, where like someone can be sex positive, homosexual, like whatever uh, letter of the LGBTQ acronym you are and still feel like God is for you. Um, and it turns out that's a more universal feeling than I thought. I've had a lot of letters from former evangelical Christians, um, from Jewish folks, uh, Buddhist folks, uh, Baptist folks, who are all trying to figure out how spirituality fits into this moment. But it does feel like you know, for better or for worse, this world is at a turning point. Um, And yeah, I think you're right. I think that a lot of people are trying to figure out, you know, where to turn amidst the turning point. Mm
1: -hmm. Would you say a a big part of what you want to do is unite people of completely different faiths? Like, what do you see as the value of that? I see that the value of talking about faith
2: in a multi-faith setting and under a progressive political framework I see the value here being that we have more in common than we do have different, right? The Republican Party, for example, Donald Trump and his cohort, they love to say that they're the party of God, but, right? But they're also the people that instituted a Muslim ban, right? They're also the people that have escalated anti-Semitic hate violence. And so when I think about those things, you know, I think that they, they're a party of one God. And I think hopefully this progressive arm of people and these people who are having their own social, spiritual awakenings in this moment, which many Americans are, I hope they realize that we are all assembled under a common belief system, hopefully, of trying to achieve equality. And you don't need to believe in one God or one way of getting to God um, to, to be under that umbrella. So unity for sure. And then if you're not about God either, I think the podcast is still relevant to you. You know, one of my favorite people to follow on Twitter is Chris Stedman. He's a professor of religion, but he's also an atheist. And I, I love, think that Chris. That, love Chris. And I love he has a book coming out in October, and I love that his approach to faith is like he acknowledges how important religion is. And he's an atheist, right? And he doesn't need to believe in something in order to operate by a framework that he considers just. And I think that that's a great example. Like we still need to acknowledge and be keeping track of the insidious role religion is playing in society, regardless of whether or not you want faith to be a part of your life.
0: Mm -hmm. I think that for me, what also helped me come back to it is just knowing that a lot of the artists that I respect, you know, a lot of the things that I read, you know, are steeped in faith, you know? Like, I've I've always loved reading books, like, in the southern gothic tradition you know whether it's like an octavia butler or like a um flannery o'connor um you know like those are heavily about faith um and how we respond to that i was reading more tony morrison like in the wake of her death you know that i hadn't read before like i read jazz for the first time you know and it's it's um just so much of what we love operates in that framework even we talk about scorsese on the podcast all the time you know and um I was revisiting some of his films recently and, you know, it's not just the ones like silence, you know, or condon, which are about specifically about religion and stuff. It's, it's in the departed, you know, it's yes. in taxi driver. It's yes. all about someone who's grown up in Catholicism and how they reckon with that as a human being. Um, the and Departed. I'm from Boston,
2: honey. That movie was like the <laughs> The Departed. We all watched it. The Departed, Goodfellas, Casino, The Godfather. That, that was like all was that was on my television growing up. That and The Exorcist. But yeah.
1: In the Name of the Father, a good Catholicism movie, if you've never seen it. <laughs> oh, I've not great. seen
2: that. I'll add that to my list. But yeah, I, I mm-hmm. love what you're saying. Octavia Butler also such a prophet for our current time. If you haven't read... Mm-hmm. Parable of the Sower, I mean, it is the most prescient book for this current moment. I can't think of anything more perfect for right now.
0: Mm-hmm. And you are really doing a good job, I would say, on Unholier Than Now, which y'all need to listen to, and they will, because they're listening to you now, and they will fall in love with you. Uh, I was listening to recently your episode with uh, Reverend Warnock, yes. um, and I thought that that was such an interesting convo in the way that it was able to take one, the political and what we're dealing with right now and sort of connect it to this idea of a progressive left, you know? And um, that's something that I've always wanted to talk about and explore a bit because I feel like that's something that, say, like, Pete Buttigieg was trying to hit early on when he was running, um, this idea that we could take religion back from conservatives. Um, And, you know, how did you feel coming away from your conversation with Reverend Warnock, and where do you think that we go as, like, liberals who are constantly fighting against conservatives who are like got this got that you know but then also supporting donald trump who probably doesn't even know um How to read a Bible.
2: Yes, I I came away with so many takeaways from that conversation. And I think one of the subtexts of the conversation that maybe we didn't have time to address was being more explicit about the weaponization of religion and who weaponizes religion for political gain. Mm -hmm. And by that, obviously, I mean how religion is tied into white supremacy. And so when I talk to my friends and my loved ones about my own upbringing and how I felt oppressed by Catholicism, You know, and how I feel like Catholicism is a force against social progress in a lot of ways, specifically with how the Catholic Church funds different political initiatives or bars different, I guess, instances of progress from happening all over the world, whether that's LGBTQ equality or reproductive justice, right? that's not the same experience that many Christians in America have, specifically a lot of black Christians who feel like their church was talking about liberation theology and a framework of achieving justice because that's what Jesus would have wanted. And it goes to show you how many different incarnations of Jesus there are in this country, right? And so I loved how Reverend Warnock talked about how his idea for progress and social justice in America is rooted in who he is as a religious person. And his religion isn't telling him to prevent women from doing what they want with their body, right, because he understands how reproductive justice is tangled in issues of economic justice, right, or bodily autonomy and empowerment, right, or control of women's bodies, right, he also doesn't stand in the way of LGBTQ equality, because that's not what his church preaches, right, and that's the same, he preaches at the same church that Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. preached at, right, and so to hear and to be exposed to different ways of Christianity made me feel a lot better because I think I had this one track mind about Christians and Christianity in America. Um, And I think to see people like Reverend Warnock gives me a lot of hope and also shows me that I still have a whole lot to learn. Right. Mm
1: -hmm. I just want to say, I'm thinking now I grew up Catholic and I was like an altar server and a reader and otherwise somebody who knew a lot about Bible studies growing up. I'm an obsessive trivia person. How much of church is fucking theater? Oh, my God. Like, on accident, it made me gayer. I'm not kidding. Like, you would go up to, like, the uh, lectern and read, and you wanted everybody to have eyes on you, and so you had to get that speech team energy going. You had to sell the, uh, uh, the text in front of you. And I just wonder how accidentally... Gay people discover themselves in religious settings. Oh, for
2: sure. I mean, let's not forget the Pope wears Prada shoes, baby. Like let, that's what that I'm saying. Is, yeah. is, <laughs> the whole costuming of the Vatican is extremely camp. You know, I talked to John Lovett about this not too long ago. Like Catholicism is camp, right? The whole idea of hell and Satan and like seeing the bloody, sweaty body of Jesus every time you walk into the church. I mean, the whole thing is like it's like out of a a movie set. Um, and I and I think that's the one thing about Catholicism that I've had to reckon with. Like I. Um, in art history class at NYU, that's when I learned that like Michelangelo and Da Vinci were like queer, right? And like all of these like muscular naked bodies on the Sistine Chapel are not like these like gorgeous bodybuilder men for no reason. Like <laughs> Michelangelo is painting what he knew. You know what I mean? So all of the the weird ways that homosexuality is intrinsically embedded in the church is wild.
0: I will always say that is why Passion of the Christ was bad. Not just because Mel Gibson is trash and, trash and anti-Semitic, but you know, there's nothing sexy about that movie. Right? Right? Yeah. And and, and you should want to bang Jesus. <laughs> Come on. <laughs>
2: Christianity
0: is so much about sex, like
2: original sin and denying people sex and temptation. Like, come on, if you're not getting Mm -hmm. to the root of that, then what the hell are you doing? That's what, the the church should have hired Madonna. Like they shouldn't have like condemned her. You know what I mean? Like she was onto something.
1: The like a prayer video remains like one one of the closest things to an actual religious experience I've I've had. But I want to add, have you seen that on Twitter? I saw there's this Dutch artist rendering of what Jesus actually looked like. Yes. Um, And Jesus looks like, I can only say like hotter Dev Patel or something, but he is <laughs> brutally sexy. Oh my I just God. <laughs> I want to thank this artist whoever had the nerve to draw this because the attractiveness of Jesus should be discussed more as uh, uh, what's that word? Canon. <laughs>
2: right. I was, I literally, I think I was, I was working at Teen Vogue at the time and I was, uh, we had just published a video series in partnership with Muslimgirl.com about like debunking myths around Islam for like, and, and you know, it was written by and, and really helped to produce by these young Muslim women and, And so I was asked to moderate a panel for International Muslim Women's Day. And I remember one of the panelists was Linda Sarsour. And she was like, so like, are you religious? Why are you, you know, like essentially like the subtext was, why are you here? And I was like, I'm not religious. Uh, I'm like an ex-Catholic and blah, blah, blah. And I remember she said to me, you know, what a shame that like someone with your values feels like your church doesn't represent you because that's so not who Jesus was. And I was like, what do you mean? And she was like, honey, Jesus was an asylum-seeking refugee who was a person of color, who was a feminist, who was wrongfully incarcerated and given the death penalty, who also believed in healthcare for all. Like thinking about Jesus in that framework, like rocked my world. I had never thought about him that way. I had never even realized that Jesus was a person of color. I mean, the brainwashing is so real. It's so real. Yeah.
0: Thanks, Crusades. (laughs) (laughs) the colonizers win again (laughs) um lastly you know like you're in podcasting now you know this is a whole new shift you know like how do you feel about your time in media you know how do you feel also about like ways that we can bring the spirit of what people loved in media forward you know i mean like there's still magazines and stuff obviously and you'll never get over like flipping through the pages of vogue and seeing something you know but like what do you think generations want now what do you think that people really want to continue seeing more of because i mean like you were at the top echelon of it i mean when you were sitting with anna you were really sitting with anna i was um and i'm very grateful for all of the The things that I
2: got to learn during that time, both the positive and the negative things about the media, you know, um, I have written a little bit in my newsletter about just like the processing the amount of regrets I have about my career thus far and the terrible ingrained messages you get from working in a cutthroat media environment. Um, mm-hmm. I am very grateful that Crooked Media does not operate like that. Let's just say that. Um,
0: that's what you give think. Give it a year. Give that's, it a year. Yeah, that's right. what you think. Here John helping. Favreau is trying to kill me. <laughs> <laughs> I have a restraining order. It's you fine. do?
2: I wouldn't want a restraining order against him. He's too handsome. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyways. I um, I have a lot of things that I think about the media. The, the, the most pressing thing is that we have to train young people to want to pay to support media. We also have to realize that our clicks are our support. Whether or not you mm-hmm. think it is, if you are hate reading something someone at the top of the company of the media publication that you are hate reading believes that their strategy is working, right? They operate off of impressions, which means they operate off of how many times people come to their website. So sharing articles from the Murdoch-owned publications like the New York Post or hateful publications like Breitbart or the Daily Caller, that is only going to incentivize those people to continue. It's only making them stronger. Um, So we have to do a better job as young people about financially supporting the publication we care about, um, and we we also have to have education around why paying to support media is so essential. This does not necessarily mean that if you pay for something, you need to agree with everything they print, but you need to realize that your dollar is going somewhere that you feel like is net positive or, or, is, or is making a, a bigger difference in the world. A lot of the corruption that happens in media, including the lack of diversity in media, is reinforced by advertiser interests, right? Mm-hmm. At a certain point in my time at Teen Vogue, it was very hard launching them because it was hard to convince advertisers that young teenage women were intelligent. It was hard to convince advertisers that LGBTQ people were not just cisgender white gay men. And to not have that literacy from the advertisers means that the pocketbooks weren't opening for us to have money to grow and to stabilize and to be at the level of a Vogue or a Vanity Fair. And so as long as advertisers are controlling the media with their purse strings, we're not going to have a media environment that is representative of the people you see talking on Twitter. There's a reason that many people have been boxed out of media newsrooms. There's a reason that those C-suites all look the same. There's a reason they're all facing the same reckoning they are today. And it all has to do with following the money. And I do think that's a crucial part of the conversation that is missing. While it's so important to hold bad actors accountable, and I, and I do believe in that, um, I also want to make sure that we are focusing our energy on what is next and who, how to support what's next. So I'm really encouraged by like websites like The 19th. Um, Cindy Levy, uh, the former editor-in-chief of Glamour, is uh, launching another gender justice media initiative called Meteor. Um, and all of those things have these kind of built-in subscription components. Please support Autostraddle. It's one of the...
1: I love Autostraddle.
2: Yes, yeah. One of the LGBTQ media publications that needs our dollars and does not look like everything else that's available. It is so vital. And that is my big takeaway from media right now. If you're looking on your timeline and you're seeing a bunch of garbage from publications that you once really revered, it's because they've fallen victim to this system that like long predates us. You know, I feel like, I arrived to Condé Nast like thinking I was coming to the party and like I was so excited to be like the editor-in-chief and I realized like I was just tap dancing at a funeral you know what I mean like the party Mm -hmm. had ended long before I walked
1: into those rooms Mm. I think you make a good point also about just the passiveness of what we click on whatever kind of link it is I almost wonder if there should be some sort of exercise we do that's like a food diary (laughs) where you go through what you actually clicked on how long you stayed on the page whatever because I'm sure it would surprise you I mean I think of myself as a pretty well-read person when it comes to what i should be reading on the internet but that said maybe it's a lot of garbage maybe it's a lot of i got you know uh, hoodwinked by a headline that's Mm -hmm. probably offensive to somebody etc um i think we need to think more actively just about what we actually are looking at because we treat the entire internet like instagram just like oh here i am watching 10 stories of somebody i'll never meet you know whatever
0: one thing that really helped me was like I follow the writers I love instead of publications, you know, and like if Doreen St. Felix writes something, obviously, you know, it's like Angelica Bastion writes something, you know, it's like I know that it's always the click, click, click. I will bookmark it, make sure I read it later. And then I've made sure that I've gotten subscriptions, you know, to like publications that I love, like, yeah. you know, to support them. But and um, I hope these publications
2: a- come up with tiered models so that the subscriptions are not cost prohibitive, right? Like the, the New York yeah. Times is expensive to subscribe to. I think I know what I get when I subscribe to it, so I'm very happy with my subscription. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it's like you can buy a subscription for a year of Vogue for ten dollars. Like that is yeah. not valuing the content or the new Vanity
0: Fair, you know, which I just got
2: come on. Like we should, I would happily pay $50 to support what Radika Jones is doing. You know what I mean? And she deserves that money. Right. And, and like that is like her team is doing the right thing. And like, we should financially incentivize them because it doesn't matter in six months in those boardrooms, what she did six months ago. Right. Like it, it mm-hmm. becomes a conversation of a bottom line and the bottom line conversation is the most frustrating conversation as an editor trying to make change. Um, it, it really devalues your work. It makes you feel Feel not valued. It also makes you feel like you failed, um, and it's like, how can you go up against the titans of industries who don't want a more diverse world, who don't support the vision that you know is going to attract audience? Teen Vogue keeps attracting audience. Lindsay Peoples Wagner keeps that torch going, and she is killing it there, right? But like, without being able to financially support her, as consumers we're still relying on companies like Facebook and Amazon you know what i mean to to mm-hmm. pay the bills in that in that company and so that's what makes things really really tricky. And, um, I don't think there's an easy answer for the companies right now to switch those business models, but, um, I am wishing the editors, you know, all of the best. And I definitely stand in solidarity with them because there's a lot of really amazing, talented people who do not deserve, um, the scrutiny they're getting or to lose their jobs because they can't convince advertisers to believe in equality.
0: Yeah. Oh, thank you so much for being here, Phil. You're welcome. I'm, I'm glad to have an uh, uplifting conversation with you guys. Where is the, um, Where's the newsletter that you told people you have? How can they read that?
2: Fruity.substack.com. I've taken a hiatus since I recently moved to LA, but I will be back next month.
0: Okay, yes. I'm glad you're here, and I'll be so happy when we will be able to do... You know the last mani-pedi I had was with you in New York <gasps> when I met you at that place? Oh my God, are you gel-free? <laughs> no, I've, I've, I've been doing them myself now. Look at you! I got a, I got a UV light at home. <laughs>
2: Come on, you little beauty influencer. Jackie, I better watch out.
0: I love Anthony it. Anthony better watch out. Yes. The yes. <laughs> <laughs> Not Anthony. Anyway, Unholier Than Now. It's a new Crooked Media podcast with Phil. Go and listen to it. Thank you, guys. <laughs> On Friday night, the world lost a king, an amazing performer, an all-around fantastic human being. Um, After a private four-year fight with colon cancer, Chadwick Boseman, King T'Challa, passed away. And uh, I have to tell you, this hit me like a ton of bricks, because I've mentioned on the podcast before, um, at the beginning of quarantine, you know, that my grandmother had breast cancer. Um, And so it had been dealing with that for five months of quarantine. And then that morning was when she got the cancer-free diagnosis. So I was elated, crying, so excited. And you're just like, yeah, you know what? Fuck you, cancer. And then literally three hours later, I hear that Chadwick Boseman died due to cancer. And it's just like, this is such a fucking indiscriminating thing that kills people and um it hurt i i I mean i hate
1: to try to approach it from the perspective of a historian but i just cannot think of another pop cultural i don't want to say moment but like death or tragedy that is like this in that he knew he had it for four years and now his filmography feels like this insane incredible gauntlet he ran Mm -hmm. while doing his best to beat the odds I mean, let's look at the quadrangle of icons he has now played, starting with, of course, Black Panther, but James Brown, a stellar performance in that movie, Get On Up. The other Viola Davis, Octavia Spencer film, by the way, Mm. Marshall, and then 42, Jackie Robinson. I mean, it's like that run is so incredible. It's like an Angela Bassett-like run of... Icons, you know, if you look at her filmography, she's played black legends, uh, young and old, and Betty
0: know. Shabazz three times. You know,
1: right? No, she just whenever she has a moment, she plays Betty. Chabazz. Which I
0: had to remind her of; she forgot that she did it once in like this Melvin Van Peoples movie. Right, right. I was like, right. you played them three times, but it's like it had always become a joke too, like that Chadwick Boseman was always playing these black icons. <laughs> you know, it was like you're gonna do a black biopic, well, call up Chadwick. I guess he's playing George Washington Carver this week. (laughs) But um, now that we know that he has had it for the past four years, you know, and um, it really, yes, does seem like he knew a gift he was giving to people and knew that it could go away at any moment, particularly Black Panther and what that meant for Black people to see like representation on screen, for younger kids to see something like that. And I will say, you know what, it also sucks that, you know, that now that he's gone, there's no one else with that mantle, you know, which um, lends itself to, hey, maybe you should make more than one black superhero movie every few years, you know, right? <laughs> People wouldn't be as crushed if there was like Storm or something, you know,
1: I am very excited that we will get to see him in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Uh, another August Wilson adaptation. Hopefully, it'll be as good as Fences, which was so awesome and it, uh, from a couple years ago. And Denzel Washington is again producing, not directing.
0: Yeah, one of the best American plays ever written, by the way.
1: Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Ma Rainey's
0: Black Bottom. It's um, mm-hmm. I love it more than Fences, actually, which is always considered like um, August Wilson's um, most iconic work. Ma Rainey. It's like one set. It's dealing with like white music. Execs, you know, just sort of like jerking them around. And then it deals with the interpersonal drama of um the band and like dealing with race and um in the music industry and shit. And it's set in the 20s, um, because August Wilson was doing his um decade um experiment. He was writing a play set in a different decade of the 1900s of showing black history um and so the so-called ma-
1: cycle plays yes. yeah the
0: cycle <laughs> plays um ma rainey is a fucking amazing play and,
1: and it's again viola davis so i mean it's
0: ma rainey <sighs> the, the devastator and he's playing the character levy which is roll out the oscar i
1: i mean that's what's crazy about this also additionally is like are we really now ramping up for an oscar season about him, because it really does seem like there's enough in that role for that to happen. I mean, Black Panther, a Best Picture-nominated movie uh, featuring an iconic performance. It's also just interesting to think about that role now. Like, will we now have to wait a few years before we get Black Panther to come back with a different actor? You know, like, what's, like, the right mode of action to take in this case? Mm -hmm. By the way, have you not been fucking devastated by the amount of interviews that have, like, come to the surface since then where he gives hints about... Somebody says something like, oh, you seem exhausted, and he responds, I've been going through something, and one day I'm going to be able to live to tell about it. And then you realize that was an actual reference to all he was going through. But the fact that he made reference to this horror at all, and I guess you would have to, given the amount of interviews you do on a junket for a movie like Black Panther— Adds another layer of heartbreak to this. Mm -hmm. I mean, seriously, name another event like this in history where, like, David Bowie kind of, I think he knew he was sick and he presented his last album as sort of like a a farewell. But otherwise, I can't think of anybody who, like, knew they were dying and then, like, Mm -hmm. there was a particular urge to get this media out because of it. It's just so crazy to me.
0: Speaking of interviews, you know, like he was such a kind and generous person. Um, Routinely described as Zen like. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I I interviewed him for, uh, in 2018, for um, the UK magazine shortlist. Um, It was pre Black Panther. And, you know, we're just at this studio and he's like, he's chill. You know, we're in this. we're in the room where he's getting his makeup done, you know. It's like um, he's just having a conversation with me, you know. And uh, he seems so larger than life then at the moment. But, you know, he just really also just seemed like a kind Zen-like soul, you know. For I mean, I feel like you have to be Zen if you're dealing with this, you know. Right. If you, otherwise, you're just like screaming at the world um, for four years.
1: I was heartened also to see that Black Jeopardy! clip come up. Where he yes, uh, plays Karen. T'Challa. Yes. And he yeah, describes the nature of uh, Karen's potato salad and how unseasoned it is. He really played every comic beat of that to the hilt. Uh, he was funny. Yeah.
0: He was funny. He had good taste in music. There was like um, classic and like current hip hop, like playing on the stereo when I went there for the photo shoot, um, which is an amazing fucking photo shoot. People should Google um, shortlist because uh, he the array of different outfits and like poses and everything like it's fantastic doing like gymnastics and like a handstand like during this fucking photo shoot and um one thing about him and music and that taste is he started out as a playwright When I interviewed him, um, I had mentioned that actually, like, I went to school in Chicago where one of his plays had debuted before he broke into Hollywood, Um, and it was this play called Deep Azure, uh, and it was presented in the fall of 2005 at the um, Congo Square Theater Company. I recently was able to procure a copy of it um, on The Low, uh, and I reread it, and it was just... um, it's a play done in rhyme, you know? So it feels very Shakespearean, but it also feels very hip hop. It feels very stately. It's just so pressing it too, cause this is from 2005. And the story is about this man named Deep who was killed by a police officer. Uh, and um, it creates protests. And like, it feels like you're reading a play that was written now. to be honest um i really hope someone does put this back on again because it feels like so much of it feels like it talks to the moment that we're in now and it's dealing with mortality and it's dealing with like how we interact with each other as black people and um i asked him during the interview you know like uh what made him jump into doing films and all this and he was actually you know like before he had had a break, he was committed to, you know, just being like a writer and theater performer and director for the rest of his life. And he had talked about like how that was something he remembered fondly. And I just think that like, we're truly robbed of seeing him be able to go back to that, you know, because reading this play, it's moving, and it's talent. And you know, it's just sort of like, someone would have wanted to see him write, again we talk about him as how much he meant to the black community about how much you know he loved just like seeing kids do that wakanda uh, (laughs) um greeting you know and um in it like there's this line that he wrote um about his character where he's just basically talking about the character he found his mission and said if you're only serving self that service is in vain and that's when he started to change and i think that you know him writing that in 2005 knowing that he had already come to like this mindset of you know like service for others man for others as the jesuits would say it just puts his whole career into this perspective of he's doing this art for people to help people particularly black people reckon with um so much of the daily trauma that happens in our lives
1: and as a performer i do think people should really revisit get on up specifically for a couple of reasons Mm. one first of all i had forgotten the charlie's and bombshell like makeup job they had done on him to really recreate james brown like i did not know it was that like molded in plaster like really impressively done but also uh you get to see him play all the stages of james brown's life aside from when he was a little kid and the commitment to every mannerism like the way he moves his mouth as james brown is exactly right like and then pile on like the dancing and the like the the rage of james brown and the um you know the strangest of james brown obviously one of the most checkered past probably in all of pop culture Mm -hmm. but he got all those dimensions and as a movie it hangs together strangely because it's basically presented as this Chronologically uh, wacky uh, mm-hmm. mosaic of his life. And I don't know that that's totally effective, but. Well,
0: it is a Tate Taylor film.
1: Right, right, right. But what he does is so impressive and so constant. Like, you just can't take your eyes off the level of mastery he has on screen there. It really is a remarkable performance. So, um, if you're looking to revisit his filmography, start there. Mm-hmm.
0: At 42. Yes. Like, him as Jackie Robinson is just like. It's so weird, too, that this happened during the week of Jackie Robinson Day. Right. You know, the Mets, you know, like um, even did that 42 second like protest and left the Black Lives Matter shirt um, on the diamond, you know, calling for justice for the police shooting of Jacob Blake, you know, and like what else had been happening this week in America. And it's just like, that's the kind of shit that makes you think about faith, right? Like we talked about with Phil, you know, like all of these things converging at once such a great performance the way he just carries himself it makes sense that he's coming from theater you know because he carries himself so well um I would compare it to um Andre Holland sort of in a sense too you know these are two sort of black actors who feel like they come to the material in a certain way Mahershala as well you know mm -hmm. like these are these these are just people who just like when they speak it feels like you're being gifted something their presence is a present.
1: Right. No, you, like, feel it in your spine in a way. When these people speak, there's just, like, a, a possessed quality about them that is mm-hmm. both calming and super commanding.
0: And it's sad, you know, obviously that, you know, there's um, a dearth now of, like, black superheroes for, like, kids to look up to now, you know, in the midst of this. But um, in the terms of, like, acting, just how blessed are we now that we're not in some fucking period where it's, like, he's the only one.
1: Right. You mm-hmm. know?
0: And there are other black actors creators actors producers directors who like he's worked with who will um be able to continue on with his um life's work or at least in remembrance of him you know i feel like if anything when he was coming up as an actor part of the reason he was probably cast in so much shit like add these characters was like it seemed like he is the one right you know and now we're thankfully in a period where his loss it hurts and it leaves a huge hole but the hole will eventually um be healed
1: and unmistakably huge talent and just unreal loss I, i mean just you'll you'll always remember where you were when you heard i mean it's one of those people you know
0: yeah um all right when we're back let's keep it and we're back our favorite segment of the episode, as usual, it is Keep It. It's just me and you this week, Lewis.
1: I know. It, it feels like we're missing some key rancor from
0: uh, Aida. <laughs> Hopefully, we'll make up for it. <laughs> uh, why don't you go first with your first Keep It? All right. I, yes. feel, like we, I feel like we've both got more than one Keep It this week. <laughs> All right. We'll
1: pitch them back and forth. All right. Uh, my first Keep It is to do Lipa's new album, Club Future Nostalgia, which... <gasps> is a uh, uh, what we used to call a remix album, really, of her last album, Future Nostalgia, which came out way at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, here's the problem with it. So it's uh, mixed by uh, this DJ, Blessed Madonna, mm-hmm. and it features cameo appearances from Missy Elliott. Madonna's on uh, Levitating Remix along with Missy Elliott. But a couple of things happen. One, in the liner notes that we saw of this album before it came out, all of these names were listed per track, and it turns out a lot of them were just samples. So, for example, Nena Cherry is allegedly on a song. Well, when I heard that, I did three backflips in my apartment, and it turns out, no, they just used, like, four seconds of Buffalo stance on one track. That's not what I wanted. <laughs> um, secondly, it's just not more danceable than the original album, and I think that's the key problem of this album. Is if you're going to put out a club album, I mean... One make me feel like I'm in a club. The music is a little too skittish and a little too uninventively sped up. Mm-hmm. I think uh, from the original versions. And additionally, there are a couple tracks near the end. There's a horse meat disco version of one song that's really good. But for the most part, it just it doesn't move the needle on songs that I already really like.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh yes, the horse meat disco remix of Love Again is. Fucking fantastic.
1: I love that song, period. It deserves more credit. Yeah. Uh
0: I do love Love is Religion too. The the Blessed Madonna remix of that is great. I what I like about the album is it feels like it feels like those old like DJ spins. Like I like the moment where it comes, it's like, um, I want to hear Buffalo stance, you know, and it plays, you know, yeah. and I like when Holla girl dips in, you know, but then um I would say that I wish the remixes had gone a bit more. The most disappointing part for me, actually, was the um, physical remix um, that Mark Ronson did with um, Gwen Stefani because Gwen doesn't have any new lyrics. You know, she just sings the second verse. Uh, And I was like, I mean, that's one way to do a remix. (laughs) Yeah, right. It's just so weird now in this era where – Mariah Carey right now is giving us all of the um rarities. Um the rarities and the EPs that like used to be released like when you would buy a cassette of like a single and like all those old remixes and things again. And it's like when Mariah Carey did a remix, it was a remix. Oh yeah. It's a completely different song.
1: I can't even pick my favorite Mariah Carey remix. I mean, Heartbreaker with DeBrat comes to mind, but mm-hmm. uh, no, Dream Lover, there's an amazing remix of that. You could just it goes on and on. And of course, Mariah was the original like remix Mac Daddy. She was the one who made us believe remixes were an art form all their own. Do you know what I think is interesting? Is so Levitating with Madonna on it, she sings on it. And if you know Madonna's recent work, like Madame X, like she has a kind of slurry vocal. Mm-hmm. And to hear her do that vocal fast feels weird Mm -hmm. like it's she's never settled into the track but that said i saw an instagram video of madonna singing recently and what's weird is her voice her natural voice now in 2020 sounds auto-tuned and isn't like weirdly she has trained her voice to sound somewhat computerized and so what you're hearing on the track that sounds overproduced is in fact just how she sings now
0: yeah Well, I enjoy parts of it, but I sort of agree with you. I wish wish for more. Yeah, just a little bit more. Yes. Um, Well, my first keep it this week goes to uh, Miss Bella Thorne. Oh, right.
1: Remember when she was like, the internet will be mine to tear in (laughs) half.
0: It is so wild thinking about how she was birthed from the same place as Zendaya. Like, they were both on the Disney show Shake It Up and... (laughs) Could be two more divergent paths. <laughs> <laughs> it's truly, it's truly goofus and gallant over here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so funny! But Bella Thorne this week decided to join OnlyFans. And well, plenty of our it, friends
1: make a lot of good work.
0: <laughs> yes, is, of course, you know, where a lot of porn performers, um, you know, make videos, um, and you could subscribe to them for like I don't know, like nine ninety nine a month. And um, I say I don't know, like I don't know. I know, <laughs> yeah, uh, nice rough guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you know it's it's content that you're buying from them themselves, you know, instead of making it for like a typical studio or something, you know. But like, there's been an influx of celebrities joining OnlyFans, you know, like Cardi or Jorinda um, Medley from Real Housewives of New York, you know. And um, it's they're creating content which is um, for their fans, you know. And um, I can see how OnlyFans could be used by people who aren't important, you know. Like if you're a chef, like having OnlyFans, you know. Um, cooking channel. I don't know, you know? But um basically Bella came in made 1 million in 24 hours. A week later she cleared 2 million cuz she set her price at $20 a month. But fans were very disappointed because there wasn't really any nude content on it and because people assumed that there would be nude content cuz it's only fans, uh, a lot of refunds um, were demanded and um, which some people said is delayed Pay out for other content creators and now uh, you know created a cap on what you can send a creator um how much money they can earn in this current time and it's like it really feels like Bella Thorne like joined this thing that a lot of people especially in the pandemic were relying on for their source of income and now she's fucked it up because she wanted to make two million dollars she already has money presumably
1: right she it, she said she wasn't like... a scream
0: reboot right <laughs> The TV show.
1: According to her, she set out to destigmatize sex work in some way, but she joined the service without any real promise of anything, and so now she's affecting these other performers, and so it's a big mess. Also, she claimed to be working with Sean Baker, the director of Tangerine and the Florida Project on something involving OnlyFans, and his response to her is the LOL funniest quote (laughs) of the month.
0: (laughs) So, Sean Baker said earlier this month, I had a conversation with Miss Thorne and discussed a possible collaboration in the far future that would focus on her life and the circumstances leading to her joining OnlyFans. On that call, I advised her team to consult with sex workers and address the way she went about this as to not hurt the sex work industry. This has been the extent of my involvement. <laughs> Oh my
1: god.
0: <laughs> Return to sender. Wow. Yeah. Can we, can we talk about how like Bella Thorne was like, I'm going to destigmatize the sex worker industry with my OnlyFans? Right, just join and it's all over now. The stigma's done. She's like, I sat down with OnlyFans and I said, I wanna make history. And that's what <laughs> this is. <laughs> <laughs> that is of course one of my new favorite memes, that is Debbie Ryan.
1: whom i love i really like
0: debbie ryan i do she's she's fun i'm glad that she's free from that show insatiable
1: right oh that's right that uh a couple of seasons on netflix right that's a very good keep it ira congrats to you thank you Um, my second keep it this week is to another meme which is this twitter thing that's going around of posting a pic of yourself in january before you knew what would happen I've got news for you. I don't care what the fuck happened in your life in January. Why the hell are you showing me pictures from your camera roll? And I'm talking (laughs) one to Ira, but two to the rest of you. Um,
0: I just wanted to post a photo of myself in Paris.
1: Oh, you don't say. You love bragging that you
0: travel. Is that the case? All right. Well, because I don't anymore.
1: True. (laughs) But also, I mean, honestly, is there not something kind of offensive about this meme? Like, before I knew what would happen, before you knew 170,000 people would die, that's what we get a picture of? You not knowing that? I don't give a fuck that you didn't know that a couple months ago.
0: That's a good point. <laughs> Lewis
1: I had no idea. Do-
0: Louis basically doing a Z Way lean at me. It looks <laughs> wild when a white man does it. <laughs>
1: I love how she leans hard and then comes back to laugh and clap like she's already done listening to. Yeah.
0: Uh, she truly has some iconic moments on that show. I mean, when she when she is on Keep It, we will discuss them, but my favorite way is just how she disarms people immediately. Like, I remember when she interviewed Jeremy Harris, the first thing she said to him was, uh, so I read the play this morning. <laughs> <laughs> Which immediately sets it up for her, yeah. <laughs> uh, she has a blast, yeah yeah, all right well, my keep it this week, um unfortunately goes to um Mr. Barack Obama. Oh no, her <laughs> listen um. This week, there were a lot of protests that came from sports teams um, in the wake of Jacob Blake's shooting and, you know, the unrest um, and um, protests in Kenosha, my home state of Wisconsin. Basically, the first thing that happened was the Milwaukee Bucks, you know, they decided not to play um a game. Um, they didn't appear on the court, and they said, when we take to the court and represent Milwaukee and Wisconsin, we're expected to play at a high level, give maximum effort, and hold ourselves accountable. And they felt like they could not do that in the midst of what was happening. Um, and they demand the same amount from their lawmakers and law enforcement, and they were calling for justice for Jacob Blake, and uh, demanding that the officers be held accountable. Um, this basically created like widespread approval you know like other teams started to lean into this the wnba which you know has always been very active you know when it comes to social justice um we talked about reverend warnock um earlier with phil and one thing they did was the wnba um the atlanta dream um wore um vote warnock shirts one game because they were protesting the fact that um, Kelly Loeffler, you remember that villain from the pandemic, um, is a part owner of the team, you know, and so they were like anti-her. But um, anyway, we had a lot of sports teams protesting and we had a lot of sports teams ending their games, you know, and it seemed like um, particularly as players, that is one way that I feel like you are able to um, use your power. You know, because um, it's not really a protest. It's more of a strike. Right. You know, Um, because it's your labor. You're not protesting. Um, You are just deciding not to work. Um, And it's in service of Black Lives Matter and what was happening in Kenosha and what has continued to happen in this country with law enforcement. But um, this week, stories came out that LeBron James sought out Barack Obama for advice to players. Um, You know, after walking out of Wednesday's player meeting in support of sitting out NBA games, um, LeBron and a small group of players turned to former president, Barack Obama, um, and he spoke to the National Basketball Players Association President Chris Paul and a small group of players late on Wednesday and advised them um, to play and utilize the opportunity to contextualize the action they want in order to play. Um, And, you know, they're going to set up a lot of voting initiatives, et cetera, whatever. This is all well and good, but my key fit is to Barack for the involvement in this because I feel like, I get I get why you would go to Barack about this, you know, like especially now um, in opposition to Donald Trump and the way that everyone else on the right, you know, tries to politicize these moments to the point where they say that, you know, like shut up and dribble, etc. You Mm -hmm, know, they don't mm -hmm. want the players speaking out. I'm just finding it interesting that you would talk to him about protesting in sports when, if we recall, when Colin Kaepernick was doing the same, he was not very helpful to be honest, you know? Uh, And, you know, he did say, you know, that it was Kaepernick's constitutional right um, and he was exercising his rights to, you know, protest um, the national anthem. But there were also moments where he was like, Kaepernick should think about the pain that he's causing military families, you know, and urging him to, like, play the game again. And, you know, really just sort of, like, riding that line of respectability. And I always hate it when he does that. I think that, one... Where's an apology to Kaepernick for that situation? Because so much of this is accepted now because of what he did, you know? Like, Mm -hmm. he was maligned, and just, like, called every fucking name in the book by Trump, everyone else on the right, and I think that um, if he hadn't done something like that, it would be harder for a lot of other athletes to be doing what they are now without being called out, you know? Like, Naomi Osaka can wear, like, Breonna Taylor's name on a face mask, or people can wear Black Lives Matter shirts um, on the court, you know, without um, being attacked as viciously as kaepernick was
1: right i also want to point out that this was a big moment for persnickety grammar twitter because (laughs) people got to point out the difference between boycott and strike and to be honest i don't think that was really news to anybody and it was a little bit of a straw man situation where we Uh all pretended that people didn't understand that but i guess it's now very clear boycott is about protesting a product and strike is about your own work.
0: <laughs> uh, I was not trying to be part of persnickety grammar when I brought it up, but uh, <laughs> no, you you're know. right. I
1: just it's, it's something I saw again and again.
0: Yeah, um, and obviously we don't have to point out the hypocrisy, but you know, like how many fucking things do they boycott all the time? Right. <laughs> it's always very funny when like a Ted Cruz will tweet something about cancel culture and boycotting, and it's like, bitch, like you, all of you people are always like, oh, this thing supports marriage equality. Well. Guess we can't eat there anymore. Right. I can't look at a Nike shoe or whatever. Anyway, those are our keep this week. Yeah, I don't think I have
1: any more. We did cover them all.
0: My one last one. I need you people to unfollow Sean King. Oh, that's still going on. I have, I have said it before, but that man this week sent out an email talking about Chadwick Boseman's death, and then in the rest of the email urged people to buy his fucking book. And let me tell you something. That is Gross. And two, when he claimed that he wouldn't be making any money off the book, um, it's ignoring what the fuck publishing is. We know that in publishing, when you sell a book, you get an advance. And then when you continue to sell books and meet the advance, then you start getting royalties from it. So to imply that you would never make money off of book sales... Is wild to me. It's misleading people. And it's also saying that even if you weren't making any money off of it, like people buying your books is giving you increased attention, you know, which could lead to other things for you, you know. So I think one, that is gross. Two,
1: disingenuous. Just fucking
0: Google Sean King. Like there are many reports about his mishandling of fundraising money, like the other scams that he has pulled. And it's just like when you try and tell people to unfollow him, there's all, I'm always shocked when there's like a white person who's like, what? I didn't know any of this was going on, and it's like there really are two damn different internets, I guess you know, <laughs> because um, we've known, black people have known, and black women keep trying to tell you online to like not follow the scammer. And like, I was posting about it, and one of the crazy things that people kept sending to me is, um, you know, I know he's sort of a scammer, but like, where else am I going to see these videos, um, you know, of like what's happening around the world, you know? And one, it goes to our, right, our conversation last week. Right, it goes to our conversation last week. Maybe someone shouldn't be a celebrity because they share black trauma porn every week. Have you thought about that? And two, mm-hmm. if he is your one-stop shop for social justice info, you're doing a really bad job at caring about social justice. You know? Stop being lazy and look at other people and real activists um, and find the stuff that he's talking about. Like he, Sean King isn't in the streets recording these videos himself. Also,
1: quite, I mean I – <laughs> You know? Like it comes from other people. Also, in just in general – question the voices you get information from. I mean, as if I yeah. follow anybody on Twitter, let alone somebody like that, you can always find a dozen other people commenting on what kind of content that person brings, you know? Yeah. It's just not hard to find. Stop pretending it's like difficult or inconvenient to realize that people hate this person or are rightfully fed up with this person.
0: And unfortunately, it's not just white people doing, you know, it's a lot of black celebrities and influencers who like just Followed him early on and like you following him in a way sort of authenticates him, you know? And so just like unfollow him.
1: Right. How many people do you follow on Instagram just because you saw a bunch of your friends follow that person? You're like, oh, they must be trustworthy. Well, your friends can be wrong, etc.
0: Yeah. And Google. <laughs> Find other activists to follow. <laughs> it's free. Yeah. Anyway, that's our show. Uh Oof.
1: There was a lot in it. Honestly, there was. I think we exhausted everybody.
0: You know, I think I think the streets wanted another um, Ira Lewis variety hour. Oh, sure. It's so weird too because our first one was um, I was in London. Look at me bragging about travel, but I was in London <laughs> and you were here in LA, uh, and now we're both in LA, but like we're not in the same room again because of all this.
1: It's like the VMAs, basically. Where are we? Yeah is is this the Total Recall set? We don't. We
0: recorded this three weeks ago. and now Kiki Palmer will come in with her keep it Uh, uh, thank you to Phil Picardi for joining us once again pouring one out for Chadwick Bozeman an amazing talented um, human being artist um, that we will deeply miss Um, and uh, we'll be back next week Keep It is a production of Crooked Media. Caroline Reston is our producer. Our editor is Bill Lance. And Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Our digital team is Nadine Mokonian and Milo Kent. Thank you to Brian Sebel for production support every week.
3: Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley.